Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got with us today uh, Karen Uslin, who is a historian, author, and a professor at Rhone University and Stockton University. She specialises in music in the Holocaust, and uh, she's here to talk exactly about that. Hi, Karen. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I was going to be very enthusiastic, but we are talking about the Holocaust. We are talking about something uh, somber, and we're going to be talking about some absolutely horrific, interesting, but horrific things. Yes. Yes, we are. And I thought we would start off uh, with Tedesenstadt. So... And do you know what? We might as well just jump straight into it instead of talking about niceties and pleasantries. We want to talk about the subject. So we're starting with Theresienstadt. So can you tell us what was Theresienstadt and why is it so important in this narrative that we're going to be talking about today? So Terezin was a camp that was founded in 1941 after the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia they removed the Aryan residents from Terezin. So this was an actual town. It had been founded as a fortress town by Emperor Joseph II, and it was being used as a military barracks town. And then once the Nazis come into Czechoslovakia and they're looking for a location for a Czech concentration camp, they decided that this was the location that they thought would work best for their pursuits. And they removed the Aryan residents and turned the town into a concentration camp. So this ended up becoming a mainly a stopover for further transports to Auschwitz. But it also ended up being a place where a lot of cultural artists, academics, people involved with theater, music, etc., ended up being sent to Terezin, which is why it ended up having such a significant cultural life in its existence. I'm actually really curious because obviously I use Terezin stuff and you say Terezin. So can you tell me why do you use that that specific terminology? Because for me, people who listen to this know that I've, you know, worked a lot in Poland, I've dealt with a lot of Polish historians and done a lot of reading. And when I do my reading, it's always referred to as Terezinstadt. So I will say in the United States, I've seen it both ways. I say Terezin or Terezin because the survivors from Terezin that I have worked with and that I have interviewed and whose lives I've been a part of over the last 10 years or so, that's what they say. They were born in the Czech Republic. They're from the Czech Republic and they always say Terezin. So that's what I say. There are some scholars out there who will use Terezin to talk about the town and Terezinstadt to talk about the camp. Um, but over here, it seems to be a matter more almost of personal 
preference, at least from what I've found. Um, but I can say that when I'm looking up information, I look up under both terms because I just never know what I will find under, whether it's under Terezin or Terezinstadt. I was about to say, your research must prove really difficult because you're having to search both terms to make sure that you've covered all your bases. One of the many things that can make this area of research difficult to uh, find information on. I feel your pain because um, for me, for example, when I'm translating from one language to another, obviously usually Polish to English, you come across where survivors write, for example, a Polish word mixed with a German word mixed with, I don't know, whatever language it is. And you have absolutely no idea what they're referring to. So you're having to use Google Translate in six different ways to try and work out what they actually mean. Yes, I know Google Translate is not perfect, but it, it definitely has been my friend over the last few years. So right, let's go, let's go back to um, today's and today's and that's whichever term you wanna you wanna work with, and tell us where does music actually come into all of this? So the first instances we know of music happening in Terezin is from a Raphael Schechter. And Raphael Schechter was actually born in Romania. He was a professional musician in the Czech Republic. He went from Romania to the Czech Republic, first to Birno and then to Prague. And he was on the first transport to Terezin. So there were two transports of men who were sent to Terezin in order to get the camp ready for the uh, people who were going to be coming in after. And he would gather the men in the barracks after their workday and start singing. They have them sing camp songs. Um, one of the survivors, Edgar Krasa, who was actually Raphael Schechter's roommate in Terrazin, has said that he, Rafi, Raphael Schechter thought that there would be a prison mentality among the men if they didn't do something to try and keep their spirits up within the situation they were in. So that's sort of the beginnings of music in Terrazin. But what ended up happening was that the Nazis created Terrazin to have the appearance of being a self-governed community. So there was a group called the Council of Elders, and there was a head of the Council of Elders. And these were men who were in charge of distilling whatever Nazi ordinances went out on a daily basis down to the prison population. Because of this self-governing aspect or the appearance of self-governing uh, that was going on in Terrorism, you had a situation where there were all kinds of different departments that popped up. So departments for fixing clothes and shoes, uh, a kitchen department, a department for gardening and picking vegetables for the Nazi officials. Uh, there were different things that were divided and departments within departments. One of these governmental-esque departments that appeared in Terrazin was something in German is called Freizeitgestaltung, which means Free Time Activities Council. And so you had departments then for music, for theater, for sports, for academic lectures. And that's when cultural activities in terrorism became a formalized part of the society there. 
it's incredible how you're managing to create this whole government style in a place of well hell pretty much which is how i describe pretty much every every camp at that time and it kind of seems quite idyllic well the idea seems idyllic but i'm assuming it wasn't as idyllic as i'm making it out to be no and that was the entire that was the entire point so this was still a place that suffered from massive overcrowding you had a town that was initially built for 6 to 7000 people to live comfortably that at any one time could have between 60 and 75000 people in it you had disease you had starvation you had people who were working under extreme conditions with very little food and then you also had this threat of transports so initially there were transports that went to i believe riga and treblinka and then eventually all the transports went from terezin to auschwitz so this was a place that the nazis wanted the ability at any given moment if say the international red cross wanted to visit a camp because that had been something that had been going through the rumor mill eventually in june 1944 the international red cross did visit terezin and that's a whole uh separate thing in itself but they wanted a place that they could you know sort of turn on the blinding lights to make people think that this was a normal town with normal things going on and it very much was not the conditions were horrific so what makes what makes it so unique There are a couple things that I believe make Terrazin unique and part of it is this self-governing idea. I do not know of any other camp that had this sort of model of a council of elders and almost governmental-esque departments within the structure of the camp. And also with cultural arts being a defined part of that structure that this was something that somebody could come to Terrazin and I believe that they would have to do some sort of manual labor for the first two weeks they were there and then after their first two weeks they would be given an official assignment within the camp that assignment could be to work full time for this free time activities council and while there are plenty of other examples of music and cultural events happening at other camps in Terrazin it comes down to quantity in a lot of ways the sheer amount of recitals and theater shows and operas and academic lectures that went on i believe makes Terrazin unique compared to other camps in the Nazi camp system at the time So you've mentioned to me and you haven't told me about this obviously because uh, the people who are listening I us historians in this field always talk to each other um specifically you didn't tell me what this was but you did tell me that it existed which was the Verdi Requiem so tell us a bit more about that Okay. So the Verdi Requiem actually goes back to Raphael Schechter who I mentioned earlier so once he w- when he was deported to Terezin he brought two music scores with him we don't know why he brought these scores with him because obviously there's no 
possibility he would have known that he could have used them. But he brought Smetna's The Bartered Bride, which is the Czech National Opera, and he brought Verdi's Requiem. And so this piece, for those who don't know about the Verdi Requiem, uh, Giuseppe Verdi, who I think more people are familiar with as an opera composer, he was an Italian composer, and he uh, premiered his Requiem Mass in 1874. He had initially set out to create a Requiem Mass in honor of another composer, uh, Giacomo Rossini, that performance didn't work out, so he took the parts of the Requiem Mass that he had and turned it into a Requiem for his friend, uh, the poet and Italian nationalist patriot, Alessandro Manzoni. It's a huge piece for orchestra and choir and for soloists. Uh, I've had the chance to perform this piece a couple times, and it is massive what it takes to put this on. But this piece had personal resonance for Raphael Schechter. And he decided once he saw that cultural activities were getting off the ground in terrorism, that this was something he wanted to do. So he put a choir together and the choir rehearsed for seven weeks. They learned the score by rote, which knowing this score astounds me that you could have prisoners learning this score by rote. And in September 1943, there were rumors of transports began circulating through the camp. And the choir wanted to perform the piece. Uh, Raphael Schechter was a bit of a perfectionist from all accounts and didn't quite think that the choir was ready. But because of this threat of transport, he wanted the choir to have the chance to show off the work that they had done. So... Um, the uh they did do a performance there was a transport Raphael Schechter lost half of his choir he recruited new members and then the Verdi Requiem went on to be performed 16 times in Terrazin the last performance was actually in June 1944 for a visit of the International Red Cross so the International Red Cross came to Terrazin this whole visit was planned. The Nazis had planned out exactly the route in the camp the International Red Cross would take, exactly what things they would look like, exactly what actions people would be doing on this route. It was a whole sham. But they saw a performance of the Verdi Requiem. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the text. The Requiem is a Catholic mass for the dead. And there are several texts in there. One is a DACRA that talks about a day of wrath, a day of judgment. And so for some of the members of the choir and for Schechter himself, they felt this was their ability to sort of in Latin tell the Nazis to their faces what they felt and that, you know, the day of judgment would eventually reach them. So it's a pretty amazing situation. Unfortunately, after the Red Cross performance in uh, October of 1944, most of the musicians in Terrazin were sent to Auschwitz, including Schechter, and he ended up dying on a death march sometime in March of 1945. I've got to tell you, that is a really beautiful way um to resist it is a beautiful form of resistance and 
I was kind of hoping, and I always do this for everything and anything under the sun when it comes down to the subject. Like, I hope he survived. I really do. And yeah. then the result is they don't. It's And it is heartbreaking because you think, you know, March 1945, it's, it's not too much longer to go. And so you really hope that somehow um, Schechter would survive, but unfortunately he did not. However, there were several members of the choir that survived. And if anyone is interested in learning more about Schechter and the Verdi Requiem, there's a wonderful organization based out of Washington, D.C., called the Defiant Requiem Foundation. You can go to their website at uh, defiantrequiem.org. And it's an organization that does a lot with not only performance of works from Terrazan, but there are uh, concert dramas. Uh, what twice I've performed this, it's called Defiant Requiem, where we sing the Verdi Requiem, but then tell the story of Schechter and the choir uh, throughout the performance. And their website has some wonderful information, uh, educational materials. There also was a fantastic documentary in 2013, also called Defiant Requiem, that talks more about the Verdi and Terrazin. So you've got another very accomplished musician in the same place, and that's Victor Ullman. And we have spoken quite a lot about him. And he he's quite a character, isn't he? He is, and I know this is a very somber topic, but I can't help but smile when you say Victor Ullman because I just love talking about him. I love his music, and I love reading the things he wrote. Of all the musicians in Terrazin, Victor Ullman was probably one of the more well-known musicians. He had already had a significant career by the time he was deported to Terrazin. He was uh, born in 1898, and interestingly enough, he actually grew up in a Roman Catholic household. His parents had converted from Judaism, and he was raised Roman Catholic, so he didn't really start contending with his Jewish identity until he was deported to Terrazin. But he took an interest in music. He started formally studying music. He served in the Austrian army during World War One, and he initially went to school, to university, uh, to study law, and then decided to be a musician full-time. So he started composition. He studied under Arnold Schoenberg and Alban Baird, who were two of the big um, early 20th century sort of new wave avant-garde composers of the time. And he eventually worked at several theaters in Prague and in Czechoslovakia. He had a little bit of a stint in the early 1930s. He got interested in philosophy and he went to work at a Anthroposophy bookstore in Switzerland and the bookstore went into debt. He came back to Prague and continued on with his music career. He won several composition composition competitions in the early 1930s and then eventually he was involved in several high profile music and cultural societies as well. He was deported to Terrazin in September 1942 and he actually became the head of the leisure time organization in Terrazin. 
And he would do things like find practice spaces for musicians, arrange rehearsal times. He also did quite a bit of composing himself in Terrazin. And then he created a studio for new music. So for composers who were writing original works and wanted to hear them performed, they would have their works programmed on a concert of the studio for new music. And while his musical compositions are fascinating, he wrote an amazing opera called Der Kaiser von Atlantis, which the story behind that opera is quite fascinating. But the thing that I love about Ullman is he wrote three essays and 26 music critiques. And these music critiques are critiquing performances that happened in Terrazin at the time. So most of them come from 1943, 1944, but the quotes that he, that he has, he does not cut anybody any slack. So this is a quote from his 25th critique, and it was on a performance of Haydn's creation oratorio. And he goes on to say, it is the nature of our time and of our experiences that we gain distance from the delusion of the 19th century, and thus also to some of our grandparents' inviolable cultural goods. This music has, with few exceptions, about as much to do with Genesis, its sublime images and symbols, its majesty and mystery, as a chops pyramid does with a cute Rococo house. I don't know if it's appropriate to laugh or not right now. It's unbelievable because you would think he would, um, you know, take into consideration the situation around him, but he did not believe that being in the camp should prevent musicians from being the best musicians that they could be. And I've got two more quotes from you that I think you also are going to find amusing. One is from his 26th critique. This is on a performance of the opera Carmen. And Ullman says, the problem is only the production. If it is done halfway, so it can be done all the way. I've got to say, Carmen is one of my favorite operas, but wow i mean wow <laughs> i kind of am like did, did he expect that they were going to bring in sets from prague or lighting or or something to that effect he's brutal he's so so brutal but in a way i think this must have kept him going in a way i assume i think it i think it did but i also find it interesting just that high of a standard that he held people to. And the last quote from his critiques I'm going to give you, which I find just an interesting look into sort of the psyche of the musicians who were there. This is from his fifth critique, and this was a uh, a couple evenings of violin music. And he's discussing how chamber music in Terrazin has had a little bit of trouble getting off the ground. And this is what he writes. It is saddening that our artwork is not spared of personal friction, which has brought whole branches of chamber music to a standstill. 
the inability to separate objectively artistic from uninteresting personal issues has already intervened repeatedly. Wow. Okay. Just, wow. That's all I can say right now. It, it, I remember when I was translating these critiques for my dissertation and I was dumbfounded because I just did not expect that level of scrutiny given the situation that we are in. I mean, on some level, you would think that he would be happy that people are performing at all. But no, he very much wants the best that anybody has the ability to give. And some of these musicians, while they didn't have the careers that Ullman had had up to that point, there was in some cases, a, a generational, a 15 or 20 year difference between Allman and some of these other musicians. So some of them, he had seen their careers starting to get off the ground in Prague. And he just does not cut them any slack. If he's familiar with work they have done before, he will mention it. He just wants the best, no matter the circumstances. Tell us what happens to him. Unfortunately and sadly, he was also October 16th, 1944, was the day that most of the musicians from Terrazin were transported to Auschwitz. And unfortunately, Allman was sent right to the gas chambers upon arrival. If you could see my face right now, yeah, I was hoping for something a little bit more positive, but... It's how it was really at the end of the day, wasn't it? Unfortunately. And that really, that October 1944 was really when the cultural life that Terrorism had built up diminished. Now, not to say there was no cultural activities after that point. There were. But for the most part, the major musicians whose names we are a bit more familiar with, they mostly perish with that transport. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let's stick with the subject of Auschwitz. Because we know uh, we know a little bit about the camp orchestras. Yes. At obviously Auschwitz. Tell us a little bit more about that. So Auschwitz did have quite a few orchestras, and we have a situation here where there were orchestras in each part of Auschwitz. So Auschwitz one, which was more the Polish and political prisoner section of the camp, for those of you who have never been to Auschwitz, 
Auschwitz one is where the famous gate with the Arbeit Macht Frei is located. There was a men's orchestra there. And then in Birkenau, which is where the majority of Jewish prisoners were, we also have a men's and a women's orchestra. And then in Monovitz, which was a factory camp within Kana, within the same complex. And Alina, you might be able to speak a little more to that. But there was some musical activity at Monovitz as well. Do you know what? I'm going to bring up the first transport in this because one of my prisoners actually ended up being uh, in the camp orchestra in 1941. It was January, January 1941 that it uh, that it started. If I'm yes, yeah. Uh, so he actually ended up going in uh, in March of that year, and he ended up being a percussionist. So Czesław Sowol, um, one of the probably the most interesting prisoners I have ever read because he's, he just covers so much interesting and, and, and horrific things but uh, something i did find out recently was that there was a czech is it czech did i get it right yes it was a czech uh, a czech um roma in that orchestra which that is fascinating to me so in beer canal there was a roma camp within beer canal and actually interestingly enough the roma camp was located right next door to what was called the terrorism family camp uh, in the rush of the possibility of the international red cross making visits to a camp the Nazis wanted to be prepared in case the International Red Cross decided to visit Auschwitz. And so they sent a bunch of prisoners from terrorism to Auschwitz and created what was called the family camp. And it was located next to the Roma camp. And there is a survivor, Ruth Elias, who wrote a beautiful, uh, a beautiful memoir about her experiences during the war and during the Holocaust, but she gives great descriptions of musical life in the camps. And she mentions how in Terezin, there was an instance of a performance that happened in this Terezin, I'm sorry, in Auschwitz in the Terezin family camp, that there was a performance that happened that used Roma musicians. And so it doesn't surprise me on some level that a Roma musician might have made their way into the Auschwitz One Orchestra, but it's um, it's not an aspect you hear a whole lot about. There needs to be a lot more work done on the Roma musicians because they were considered some of the superior musicians out there at the time. So I find it really interesting talking about uh, musicians in Auschwitz because they ended up playing on concerts as well, didn't they? Not just for the prisoners, but for the SS men. I mean, they were they were utilized left, right and center. They were. They were used as musical background for Jewish prisoners marching to different places. There also are stories of music being played as prisoners went into the gas chambers and on the weekends, they would, on Saturdays and Sundays, orchestras would play for the camp commandant for uh, Hess and his family and friends. And also they would perform concerts for the guards. So there were instances where guards would, or um, higher ups in 
the SS who were at Auschwitz would put in requests of pieces that they wanted to have heard. Um, Anita Lasker Wallace, who was the cellist in the women's orchestra at Birkenau, she gave an interview, I believe it was for the BBC, she, in an article and writes how, uh, Joseph Mengele requested, uh, requested, uh, Schubert's Traumerei, which, um, was quite, uh, you know, is quite amazing to think of these men after the work that they're and the horrors that they're committing and they're requesting pieces from German composers and, you know, romantic style pieces from German composers. I want to throw in this while we're on the subject of, uh, well, there's a couple of things I want to throw in, obviously, because we can talk about this forever. But um, the first one is the amount of uh, memoirs I come across where they talk about how they used, sometimes used to sing at night in the blocks or, for example, uh, during Christmas, they would sing Christmas songs. So music was pretty much everywhere. I mean, considering they were in one of the worst places you could ever exist in, music was still very much alive. And I assume some of it kept some of the prisoners' spirits up as well. It did. And we have a lot of instances of prisoners who would talk about how when they were singing or when they were participating in musical events that their surroundings would kind of fade away or that they would be transported to a place where there was no hunger and no sickness and no fear and that spiritually it gave them a bit of a boost to be able to survive a little bit longer. Before we move on, I, I'm going to throw in something very controversial that I'd like to just just run us through very quickly. And that is the women's camp and the uh, senior band conductor, that's the, the position, I'm assuming, along those lines. Um, talk to us about her. Alma Rose. And I think you cannot talk about music in Auschwitz without talking about Alma Rose. She was one of the greats musically as far as her background goes. She was the niece of the composer Gustav Mahler. Her mother was Mahler's younger sister. And her father, Arnold, was the concertmaster of the Vienna Philharmonic. So she was a pretty renowned musician by the time she was sent to Auschwitz. And she had initially um, was arrested in France. She had been still trying to continue her music career for as long as she could. She was arrested in France. As she was sent to Drancy for several months. And then July 1943, she was transported to Auschwitz. And when she gets to Birkenau, she was made conductor of the women's orchestra there. Now, on some level, this is kind of where the controversy with her comes into play. She came under... Protection is not quite the word I want to use, but she ended up developing a relationship, a working relationship with an SS guard at the camp named Maria Mandel. And because of this, she was able to get some special dispensations for the orchestra. So they were given a special barracks. They were given wooden floors to help keep the instruments in shape, in heat and cold. 
she um, petitioned to end the requirement of playing in snow and rain because the orchestras used to play out, outside. She also was very, very tough on the orchestra musicians. So there are some reports from survivors of the orchestras that she was physically abusive. There are reports that she had a temper. But also you have to consider the position she was in. When she came into the orchestra, she replaced a lot of the women poles who were in the orchestra with better trained Jewish musicians who were coming into the camp. But those Polish musicians, she kept on as part of sort of the orchestra staff. So they would help with copying. They would assist with various administrative tasks for the orchestra. And so to Alma Rose, this was, the orchestra had to be good enough to prove that they deserved to continue existing. And by continuing to exist, there was a better chance of survival for all of them. So I think that's where some of the controversy of her methods come in. The fact that she was able to get a little bit in the good graces of some of the higher up SS guards, which allowed the orchestra to gain some benefits from that. Um, Alma Rose, eventually she died in April of 1944. And there was another woman, Sonia Vinogradova, who took over the orchestra, but the quality of the performances declined and a fair amount of the women's orchestra were eventually sent on to Bergen-Belsen. Okay, let's move on. Um, however much I can talk about Auschwitz all day. <laughs> Um, we've got Vesterbork. Obviously, Vesterbork wasn't a camp. It was a place where, where Jews were sent to, to various other camps. But there's something called the Vesterbork Serenade. So what's the story behind this? This is one of the most, I think, interesting pieces that I have heard in looking at music and the Holocaust. So Vesterbork had a fairly thriving cultural life, and quite a few of the musicians from Vesterbork did end up in Terezin itself. There were classical programs that took place, but there were also six major cabaret productions between July 1943 and June 1944. And these, the Vesterbork Serenade, came out of the camp. There was written by a singing duo called Johnny and Jones, and their real names were Max Kannenwasser and Arnold von Van Vessel. I apologize to any German historians who are listening to this for my German pronunciation. They were sent to Westerbork, and they eventually formed a cabaret troupe that became popular with the Nazi guards. And so the SS thought so highly of this song that in 1944, they sent Johnny and Jones to Amsterdam to record the piece while keeping their wives as collateral in the camp so that they would not try and make a break for it. And eventually they were sent to Terezin and Auschwitz and a couple other camps before eventually they both ended up losing their life in Bergen-Belsen. But it's a very cabaret, jazz, almost musical theater-esque kind of song. You can find it on YouTube. The recording is up there. 
And it just is the sort of song that you don't, you would not expect that kind of song to come out of one of the ghettos or camps. I just, holding on to their families, I mean, that was a usual, normal sort of tactic, wasn't it? It was, it was. And I mean, that's a side of things I think we don't necessarily hear as much about, sort of coercion tactics or coercion tactics and that was definitely one that was used you know threatening a family to make somebody do what they wanted them to do so apart from concentration camps and transit camps we also have death camps for example Sobibor, Helm, Nobelzets and Pidavinka where people were murdered instantly on arrival but are there any instances of music because for me it, it, I can't comprehend that it could be even possible for something so beautiful to arise in somewhere so hellish? There are. So, so more, we have an instance, uh, initially it did not have a camp orchestra, but eventually an orchestra was established there and there was a chorus that was established there as well. Belzec did have a small orchestra. Uh, one of its functions was to play music as Jews were led to the gas chambers, which is a horrible use of a cultural aspect in that front. Treblinka actually did have a strong musical life. Um, There were quite a few songs that we do have that came out of Treblinka. And uh, one of those was actually by someone named Aaron Liebeskin, who he wrote a song and the translation is a lullaby for my little son in the crematorium, which is heartbreaking. He wrote it after he witnessed the murder of his wife and three-year-old son. Eventually, Liebeskin ends up in Sachsenhausen and there he met a man named Alexander Kalishevitz. I apologize that Polish pronunciation is not what it should be, but Kalishevitz eventually translated a lot of these songs into Polish and sang these songs in concerts after liberation. So we do have some instances from the, from the actual death camps of music happening in addition to Auschwitz. Does he survive or does he die in Zakhmer? Kind, I actually am not sure, but I know Kalishevitz does survive. And then he made it a point of going to, um, of gathering a lot of these songs that were sung in camps or that were written in camps. And then he did several concerts and recordings of this, of this music. And those you can also find on YouTube as well. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. That was incredibly insightful and absolutely harrowing but also absolutely incredibly interesting. We've covered Theresienstadt, we've covered Auschwitz, we've covered Vesperborg, we've covered death camps. And I'm assuming we could probably talk about this much longer because there's so much more information out there. But thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This was an amazing experience. And it is, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's so much out there, but I'm glad that we can bring a little bit of this knowledge out to the public.
Join us tomorrow when Vasim Khan will be with us to talk all about his new book. It's a novel about India's first female detective and it's absolutely brilliant. He decided to set it in 1950 and we find out why and we talk all about his historical research into the background. So what we're talking about basically is partition and its aftermath in India and Pakistan. Really fascinating and quite sobering information in that one so don't miss it. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.